Well, despite what your service sheet shows you, we're no longer in the series, The Table of Undeserving Friends. Uh, as we did last July, we're going to be doing a study of the Psalms. We hope to make this a practice every July where we, we go through just a handful of the Psalms because the Psalms, they're a collection of ancient prayers. And, and just a brief look at them, you discover a very robust language for prayer. You see uh, words of hopelessness and lament and frustration, but you also see words of praise and thanksgiving and hope. And needless to say, the Psalms are very diverse. And they are because they're supposed to teach us how to pray in every and all circumstance. They're supposed to teach us how to worship in any and all circumstance. Uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, he went as far as to say, if a Christian does not know how to pray the Psalms, a Christian does not know how to pray. Now, I think Bonhoeffer's a little extreme there, but he has a good point. The Psalms are a resource for us to learn how to pray. They can become our words, and yet often we look at all 150 of them and we think, ah, it's a little much, let's move on to the Gospel of John. And so every summer in July, we're going to be in the Psalms, and today I want to look at Psalm 67. And even if you're not familiar with Psalm 67, you might recognize it because we use the first two verses of this psalm as our benediction in every service we have here at St. Peter's. And today I hope that you'll get a better sense of why we use this psalm, why we want it to form our identity as a community and how we use it in our worship and life together. And, and here's the big idea of the psalm. When we encounter God's faith, our lives get set in a totally different direction. His face leads us into his heart and into his mission. His face leads us into his heart and into his mission. And so I invite you to open up your Bibles with me to Psalm 67, beginning in verse 1. The psalmist prays, May God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face to shine upon us. May God... Be gracious to us and bless us and make his face to shine upon us. Now, to any uh, faithful Jew, these are not unfamiliar words. These are defining words. This, this is a part of the prayer that God gave to his people in Numbers. If we flip over to Numbers chapter 6, God directs the priests to pray this prayer. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift his countenance upon you and give you peace. This prayer, it roots God's people and the basis of their relationship with him. God is the one who draws us into relationship. He's the one who acts out of grace. He blesses and he keeps and he shines and he lifts up and he gives peace. And it's all because he's willing to act graciously towards his people. This is supposed to be the defining prayer of God's people. And it's through this prayer that they're reminded that the basis of a relationship with God isn't found in any performance. The basis of a relationship with God is God's grace. God acts graciously towards us by drawing us into himself. He allows us to encounter his face. He reveals himself to us. He makes himself known. And you see, Christianity then is never about a religion. It's about a face. It's about an encounter. It's about a relationship. And I know it can be kind of passe to say, you know, Christianity isn't a religion. It's a relationship. Uh, but what is at the heart of this prayer is the fact that God acts graciously, not on the basis of the prayer, or even on the basis of anything that we've done, or the rules we keep, or how good we may or may not be, but on the basis that God is just gracious, that he shows unmerited favor and kindness towards his people. So Christianity is set apart from the world religions 
on, on this fact that it's not about anything we can do, but about everything that has been done for us. Because God has taken the initiative and he has acted graciously towards us because that is who he is. So the psalmist, he knows, God is a God of grace. And God in his grace makes himself known. This is how he relates to us. But in praying this, The psalmist is showing us that we can never settle for our relationship with God being theoretical or hypothetical, but it needs to be rooted in concrete experience and relationship. And so when God is gracious to us, we experience his face shining upon us. And this makes an actual difference in our life. We get this, you know, when someone is in a sour mood, for example, when they just have a sour face and you spend time with them, it it wears off on you. You might leave with like a little bit more of a sour face or Or maybe you're the sort of person, you know, like, you just don't care about how people feel around you, and you go on through your day. But maybe you've met that person, right, who just doesn't care, and it rubs off. You're like, why didn't they care? Well, I feel a little more sour. And then you're the sour-faced person. Then someone else becomes sour-faced. Like, faces, they're just contagious, you know, and, and they have the power to communicate so much to us. And the truth is that faces affect us in many ways. But we also know how uh, a person who sincerely radiates joy, whose face beams with joy, how it can be contagious. Like, there's nothing like the happy face of a baby just to to lift up your countenance. You know, you see that face, and it changes you. You go from speaking like a normal human to talking like, oh, you're so cute, I could just pull your cheeks. Like, it changes you. There's something intimate and power about a face. God's face shines It will change us. It makes an actual difference in our lives. His face, it's like the rising sun. Just as the the heat can warm us and envelop us and surround us, so does the radiance of God's face. And as Christians, we know that we encounter the face of God in his son, Jesus Christ. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 3, verse 18, As we behold the glory of Jesus, so as we behold the glory of Jesus... We're being transformed into the same image. So we behold the glory of Jesus. We're being transformed into the glory of Jesus from one degree of glory to another. Let that verse sink in. As we behold the glory of Jesus, we're being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. A true encounter with God changes us. We actually become more like him. Sure, it's a work of degrees and it takes time, but the change, it will happen. And the beauty is that we're not changed simply by putting in all the effort. We're changed as we behold the glory of Jesus. The more we learn about Jesus, the more we lean into the story of the gospel, the more we experience him, the more we become like him. The more we keep our eyes fixed upon Jesus, the more we behold him, the more we're enraptured by him, the more we become like him. In a way, Paul is saying Christ's glory is contagious to his people. And if you want to catch some of it, you start by looking at the face of Christ. And there's a deep intimacy to this. It's like drawing near to someone for a kiss. You might think you know what someone looks like, but when you get closer, you start to see all the details, don't you? You know, the nuances of their face. The nose, you know, gets a little bigger. And you might notice a scar above the lip or wrinkles, micro-wrinkles, as Julia calls them, that you never noticed. And, uh, and the intimacy <coughs> invites you uh, to know the nuances of their face, but more so to know them on a deeper level. As we draw near to God, he invites us to, 
to behold the glory of his face, to draw in and know his nuance and know him on a deeper level. And, and we discover that he wants to make himself known to us in this intimate way. We discover that his eyes have been set upon us. He sees us. He has shed tears for us. As Isaiah even says, we've discovered that our hands are, or our names are engraved upon his hand. He carries us, and his heart feels compassion and care towards us. And as we get to know God on a deeper way, we discover that we're deeply loved, passionately loved, sacrificially loved, and we discover this because he first loved us, that he made his love known to us, not when we were looking for it or looking for a relationship or experience with God, but that he poured it out upon us. And so his face, it shines his love upon us. And it's intimate, and it will draw us in. But, and this is an important but, the end result of an encounter with God is not just a me and God or a me and Jesus relationship. When we get drawn into who he is, we see, yes, his face is set towards us and it's beautiful and he loves us. But that God's love isn't just for his people, but also for the sake of the world. Look at verses 1 and 2 put together. May God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face to shine upon us that your way may be known on the earth, your saving power among all the nations. You see, the psalmist starts out by praying this foundational prayer of the Jewish community. But then he draws out the practical implications. The psalmist knows that as you draw near to God, as you know him, as you discover his heart, you see that his face is also set towards the world. You see that he has a mission and a purpose. He wants to set the world back to rights. He wants the earth to know his saving power, his saving power throughout all the earth. He wants to save us from injustice. He wants to save the oppressed from uh, oppression. He wants to save the disease from disease. He wants to bring us back into a world full of peace and wholeness and harmony and goodness. And just as we see God's face in the face of Jesus. We see God's saving power revealed most fully in Jesus. God has definitively revealed his saving power through Jesus' death on a cross. And in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, the world to himself. So yes, that includes our sins being forgiven as Christ became a substitution for our sins, offering us forgiveness. But it's also the world. The cross has the power to create new creation and set the world back to rise. And so Jesus wants to save us from everything that tarnishes life. God wants the world then in its entirety to know this saving power because the world's recreation depends upon it. But the primary way then that God makes himself known, that he makes his saving power known, isn't by tearing open the heavens and revealing his faith. It's actually by tearing open the heavens and sending his son in the form of a human, fully God, fully man, and dying to create a people for himself. Dying to save people who can become beacons of the new creation that is to come. Dying so that his people, his bride, his beloved, can just be glimpses and tastes of how the world was meant to be and how the world will be. You see, God's promise to his people has always been, he will bless those who bless you. This means God's grace and blessing 
isn't uh, towards us just for ourselves, but also for the sake of others. Which means as the church, as the people of God, we can't just exist for our own sake. You know, if we start existing for ourselves, if, if we become a bit of a social club, you know, for, you know, cut off from the city, then in a very way, we, a real way, we've truncated who God is. We haven't come to grips with where God's face is set towards. When we think the blessing of knowing God and his saving power, uh, the blessing of experiencing his grace is just for ourselves, we miss the point of the blessing. When you have a birthday, for example, uh, <coughs> it's customary that you would have a cake. You know, and, and if you have good taste in cake, you'd get a Dairy Queen ice cream cake with your name written in neon green, uh, your favorite. And the cake is a blessing for you because of your birth. You know, it's a nice gesture. It's your cake. It's for you. But everyone at your birthday party expects a piece too. It's your blessing, but it's a blessing for the sake of others. You're supposed to share the cake. Uh, now... If you're like me when you were six and you didn't want to share the cake and hoarded it to yourself, not only would it be a misuse of the blessing, but you'd have a stomach ache. You know, you wouldn't be living in the fullness of life that could be offered and you'd be <coughs> cutting off your guests from the celebration. The cake is your blessing, but it is a blessing for the sake of others. The fullness of God's blessing is only experienced once it extends through us into others. We won't truly know God until we experience God working in and through us for the sake of the world. We won't know the fullness of his love even until we know the fullness of his love for those he sends us to care for. God blesses his people. He creates a community that becomes a witness of his goodness. And this means as a community we're supposed to operate differently than people are used to. You know, we forgive the unforgivable. We love the unlovable. We show mercy to, you know, people who deserve no mercy. And we show compassion to the inexcusable. And we're generous to the stingy. But not because we're so great, but precisely because this is how God has acted towards us. And as we experience who he is and become more and more like him, our love changes toward each other. And this, this is how God has decided to make himself known in the world since Christ has ascended. This is his plan A, us, the church. But what does the mission look like practically? It's easy to talk about it, you know, in theory. God has a mission in the world. He creates a church, and this church is supposed to be a glimpse of the, the, the kingdom to come. A community, you know, operates by by different standards. We've talked about this. You know, St. John writes, by this, you know, everyone will know that you're my disciples if you love one another. The way in which we love each other as a church is our fundamental witness in the world, according to the scriptures. Our love for one another is our most powerful witness. But then practically, love leads us to two very concrete actions, according to this song making truth known and making justice known. We make truth known. We, we share the truth about God, about who he is, about how he's made himself known. We share our encounters of God's grace. We share the gospel about Christ's death and resurrection. And, and because the gospel, it always comes to us on its way to somebody else. But it's at this point, I understand. Some of you think, no, like, isn't it enough just to love one another? Can't we just keep this to ourselves? Can't Christians just keep the gospel to themselves? This is your problem with Christianity. We're always trying to push it on other people. 
And honestly, sometimes the way in which Christians share their faith is uh, repelling. I get that. Uh, And we'll address that. But I think it's emotionally unhealthy. It's emotionally unhealthy for Christians to keep their faith to themselves. Because when you're moved by something, when it affects you, you can't help but share it. You can't help but want other people to experience it as well. Uh, Julia, she loves ballet. She just loves it. And she grew up dancing, and she was so committing to uh, ballet that she even um, broke her hip while doing a ballet jump. I think it, that's the technical term, ballet jump. And that's how committed she was. She was love ballet. Um, me, not so much. I've been told I have the right feet but the wrong body. Go figure. Anyways. <laughs> Julia and her sister grew up um, playing parts in the Jacksonville Christmas edition of the Nutcracker, which Julia told me every edition of the Nutcracker is the Christmas edition. But uh, for many years, they've done this. And uh, once Julia and I got married, we actually spent the first four years of, of Christmas in Victoria with my family. But in the fifth year of our marriage, we went to Jacksonville for Christmas for the first time. And it was long overdue, and, and Julia was ecstatic, you know, mostly because we're spending Christmas with her family, but also because I could finally experience the Christmas edition of the Nutcracker. And her sister was even in it this year, and playing a cloud or a talking penguin, I can't remember. But, um, <coughs> you know, the night, it finally came, and Julia is giddy with excitement. She can't wait for me to experience the Nutcracker because it carried so much history and meaning for her, and it was a way of her sharing part of herself with me, and she thought, you know, if Alistair can connect with me in this, maybe Alistair will start to love ballet, and it was okay. But, you know, I I did enjoy seeing Julia come alive and getting to enter into this part of her history. The point is that we share the things that move us, especially when they move us so much so to the point of becoming a part of us. It's an emotionally healthy thing to do. If Julia didn't want to share her experience of the nutcracker with me, something would be off. Something would be wrong. You know, at best, it would be maybe a fear hindering her from opening up herself to me. Or at worst, selfishness. She was trying to keep something of her own story for her own sake. Luckily for me, she let me in. So, God uses his people to share truth to share their encounter with the gospel with others because it's an emotionally healthy thing to do because the gospel is transforming us from degree by degree into the glory of Christ. But there's another aspect to sharing the truth. See, love, if it's just speaking truth, is not love entirely. Loving others involves putting these things into action. And so God uses his people to seek justice. Verse 4, it talks about God as the God of justice and equity. And since God is a God of justice, his people also pursue justice. And this is how we give witness into the world of who God is. You know, we know we can't set everything right on this side of eternity. As Christians, we don't buy into some optimistic utopia, but we do seek after the things that God desires. We seek to see the homeless cared for. We seek to see refugees and immigrants given a home and a place of belonging. We we seek to see uh, abused women protected and restored. We seek to see the sick treated well. We seek to see people given dignity. We seek uh, to see barriers of economic division torn down so that, you know, different people groups can become uh, united together. 
And it's this Christian pursuit of justice that's been among our most powerful witnesses throughout history. Whether it's caring for the poor and the sick, uh, going into areas that have been plagued, whether it's the invention of hospitals and orphanages, whether it's seeking women's rights or, or the abolition of slavery, Christians have been at the forefront of all of these social revolutions. We seek truth and we seek justice. That is the shape of God's mission. We love one another. We seek to express that love in truth and justice in the world. So God draws a people to himself. He makes himself known. He draws his people into his heart. They're transformed by his love, and it changes the way we love each other, and it changes our witness in the world. But then look at verses 3 through 5. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy. For you judge the peoples with equity and you guide the nations upon the earth. Selah. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. The truth and justice that God um, reveals through his people is the truth and the justice that the world really longs for and desires. And it's joy. It's what the world deeply yearns for. The nations want to see things set right. The world wants this. And the response of the nations when they encounter God will be praise and singing and joy because God is not some sort of cosmic buzzkill. God is a God of deep joy. And encountering him will cause the nations to sing because they will finally have found the justice they couldn't attain. They will finally rejoice because they found the lasting peace they couldn't create. And the deepest satisfaction of the world will be found in praising God. Praising the God who has been guiding the world into justice and wholeness and peace. There is no greater joy than the world being set into order in the full presence of God and his glory being reestablished upon the earth. The problem is for anyone who has sought after justice, has tried to participate in God's mission for any length of time, you know it can be exhausting. And it can lead to weariness and disappointment and even burnout. You know, anyone who seeks after justice, you know, caring for the poor, for example, you know it's just this never-ending stream of poverty. And you don't seem to make a dent. Or anyone who actively shares the gospel with people, you know more people than not will say no. And it can be discouraging. Anyone who's been around the church long enough, this church long enough, uh, knows how we can fail to live up to God's calling. And it can be discouraging. God's work through us and in us can be hard because we come face to face with people and systematic issues that just don't seem to budge. And we ourselves fall short over and over again. A mentor of mine, he used to say to me, Alistair, you can do two, maybe three, because you're stubborn, two or three years of ministry by your own strength, and then you'll burn out unless you learn how to depend on the Holy Spirit. That's true of every Christian. You can, you can try to live out the Christian life in the public sphere. You can try to seek justice and truth in the world two or three years max on your own strength. Then you'll burn out unless you depend on the Spirit. You see, encountering God's grace and the presence of his spirit frees us from this need for immediate results. It's not that we don't care about seeing change. We're just 
freed from the need for immediate results. And this is the comfort God gives us for mission, is we don't engage in God's mission in the world by trying to be on mission. You know, this would be a huge mistake, you know. For example, if any time you talk to people about Jesus out of some sort of duty or desire to win the conversation, they can tell. You know, and it's not about them, it's about you. It's the same with justice. Anytime you try to make a dent in the world's problems, but not because you want to see the problems resolved, but because you want to be some sort of hero and functional savior for people, they can tell. It's not really about the issues. It's about you. If you seek mission for the sake of mission, people will tell. But when you seek after God's face, when you seek after God's heart, and you live as a result of encountering him, and you live empowered by him, suddenly the outcomes matter less. Because it's God's mission. It's God's work. It's God's responsibility. And our identities then aren't caught up in the successes or failures. We find the freedom to pursue God in the midst of these things and leave the results to him. Because ultimately, our hope, it's not in our part in God's mission. Our hope is in the promised outcome of God's mission. Hear me there. Our hope is in the promised outcome. Look at verses 6 and 7. The the earth has yielded its increase. God, our God, shall bless us. God shall bless us. Let all the ends of the earth fear him. Scholars agree. uh, The earth shall yield its increase. Um, It's not about a harvest, per se. This is about the future day when uh, the earth will finally have justice and wholeness restored and the presence of God unhindered. It's the day when God finally sets everything back to rights and and Christ is revealed as enthroned as Lord and King of all creation and that everything finds harmony through relationship with God because Jesus has established a new heavens and earth and he's declared all things new. So we play our part in God's mission here and now, hoping and seeking after that future day, wanting to see more and more glimpses of the kingdom to come. But we're not discouraged because we know that it ultimately will come. That God's mission will be established because he has declared it and he has sent his son and Jesus will return and establish it. He will accomplish it. So wrapping up, let me ask you, how do we pursue God's mission in the world? How do we be a community of a mission and a purpose? We pursue God. We pursue God. Not in an individualistic, pietistic way. When we truly encounter God in the face of Christ, we discover his, his heart is set towards us, but his heart is also set toward the world. And when we pray the prayer of this psalm, God, be gracious to us, make your face shine upon us, we shouldn't be surprised then if our hearts start desiring that his grace and his blessing and his shining be known throughout all the world. We shouldn't be surprised if we start desiring to share truth with people and to seek justice in the world because when we encounter God for who he truly is, we will become more and more like him and we'll start to share his desires. And so if there is a a lack in our lives, if we're finding that we're not sharing Christ with people, we're not seeking after justice, we're not truly being a community that's loving each other in a a contradistinct way to the world. The issue isn't trying to buckle down and love more and speak truth more and seek justice more. The issue is that we need a fresh encounter with God. 
We need to be drawn into his face and his heart. You see, our mission in the world, it starts by praying prayers like this psalm. It starts with asking that we might experience God's grace and the light of his face in such a way that we might fully realize his heart for all people. And our mission in this city, it doesn't depend upon our ability to make God known. It depends upon God making himself known in and through us. And so that's why we use this psalm in our benediction in every service. As we encounter the light and the glory of God's face, he sends us back out into the world on his behalf. He draws us into his heart and he reveals his love for us, but then sends us out into the world with his love. It always comes back to an encounter of God's face. Your greatest participation for the mission of God in the city of Vancouver is drawing near to God, seeking his face, letting him transform you degree by degree into the glory of Christ. God's face is set towards you. His face is shining his radiant love towards you. He has made himself known. His saving power is available. Have you put your faith and trust in Christ who makes God's beauty, God's extravagance known to us? Have you become hardened towards God's mission? Just look to Christ again. So may God bless us and keep us and make his face to shine upon us that his saving power might be known throughout all the earth.